Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. So one of the uh, one of the the acronyms in the ESG stuff that's connected with the SVB, which is Silicon Valley Bank, right, which collapsed, and now we're all going to backstop it, but we're totally not going to pay for it. We're just going to like kind of backstop it, but it's totally not going to rely on our money. But we're kind of going to rely on our money, but whatever. So um, uh, one of the 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 letters in the ESG, you know, environment, social justice, and governance is obviously the E, it's environment. Um, and so when you get businesses that manage money in direct investment, like the Black Rocks, the uh, Vanguards, and the State Streets, and you got, you know, pension funds, like North Carolina, right, and Dale Falwell, the state treasurer, he manages the pension fund, and they have to make decisions on where to invest. Um, and I actually just saw uh, uh, a report uh, come across the uh, the Twitter machine uh, earlier today. They, there was a comparison that was done between the types of investments that ESG focuses on versus a neutral approach to investment, and that did far better. The neutral approach does far better than targeted ESG investment as a you know as an like an ideology uh, an ideology driven investment strategy with ESG versus just maximizing returns and if you just want to maximize returns and you don't you know use esg scores you don't look at the mission and whether or not they're doing things that make me feel good and you're just looking at is this a good business uh yeah surprise surprise the ones that are neutral do better so i think it's important for people to uh when when you know calculating their esg scores and if this is something that you care about and want to invest based off of, I would submit we need to add some other component into the ESG. I don't know if it would fall under governance. I don't know if it would fall under social justice. I mean, there is already an S there. So maybe we come up with a different letter, whatever. I'm open to ideas. You know me, I'm all about solutions. So um, I think there needs to be some component that is addressed with the uh, with the slave labor, okay? Uh, because, yeah... Right, yeah, because slave labor is apparently a very big part of uh, the ES and the G, it, although they don't account for it. There's no, I, like, I kind of think that if you're doing business with uh, slave labor and specifically child slave labor, I think that should be a demerit or two, I think, no, right? I, I mean, I think that's reasonable. I think that would fall under the social justice category. No slave labor. No child slave labor. I mean, you can have different categories. Break it out however you want to. Like, oh, no, no, we don't believe in child slave labor. I mean, slave labor, yes, but not child slave labor. Right. So why do I bring this up? Good question. Well, because I came across a piece at Compact Magazine, compactmag.com, by Noel Yaxley, an independent journalist. And... Noel Yaxley is doing uh, essentially a book report. It's a review of a book that I have not read. Uh, but the name of that book is called Cobalt Red. How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. 
It's written by a fella named Siddharth Kara. Siddharth Kara. And uh, Cobalt is not actually red. It's blue, apparently, but um, which makes sense because I've heard, you know, Cobalt blue as a color. Um, but Cobalt red, sort of like blood diamonds, right? You may not have heard of this Cobalt bluish gray substance, but it is used to power everything from laptops to smartphones. It is of particular importance for electric vehicles. It is used to power the lithium-ion batteries. It's what gives the EVs, electric vehicles, it gives them their range. The implementation of net-zero climate targets means the internal combustion engine is being forced off the road by government mandate. Which is always a great idea, by the way. Command control economies rule. Um, EVs are in high demand to meet the needs of this socially engineered environmental utopia. And with roughly 10 kilograms of cobalt in your average battery, your average electric vehicle battery, securing a source of this precious mineral has become crucially important. 70% of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And with global demand estimated to jump 585% by the, ne- by the year 2050, the book, Cara, in, the, in his book, Kara sets out to investigate the continuities of this ballooning industry with the rubber industry that preceded it. I had no idea. Do you know the history of the rubber industry as it relates to Congo? I did not know this. Yeah, I did not know that. I mean, it's like identical to cobalt now. One of the central themes of cobalt red is the extensive use of child labor in the supply chain. This is happening right now. Kara isn't the first one to investigate this disturbing reality. In 2016, Amnesty International released a report cataloging severe human rights abuses and child labor in the Congo's mining industry, or the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, According to the report, around 40,000 children work in the cobalt mines. 40,000. The similarity with the rubber industry uh, I mean, it's like almost identical. So, you know, rewind to the beginning of the 20th century, early 1900s, the territory then known as the Congo Free State was emblematic of the depredations of global capitalism and European empire. He says the, inven- uh, the invention of the pneumatic tire created booming markets for bicycles and then cars. The insatiable demand for rubber that followed made the dense rainforests of the Congo rich in this resource, made it ripe for plunder. In the European power's scramble for Africa, it was the king of Belgium, Leopold II, who took this prize and made this territory his private fiefdom. Under his rule, Congolese natives were forced to harvest rubber or face death. Women were taken hostage, and then the men were ordered to gather a monthly quota. As prices rose along with demand, quotas increased. And if you didn't meet the targets, you were taken away and shot. And you were oftentimes shot in groups to save on ammo. According to the historian Adam Hothschild, between 1880 and 1920, so over the course of 40 years, about 10 million Congolese lost their lives. 
half the population, roughly. If you look at the pantheon of mass murderers, Leopold ranks right up there alongside Hitler and Stalin and Mao. The horror in the Congo only ended when international outrage compelled Belgium to act. And the outrage was uh, stoked in part by Joseph Conrad's uh, Heart of Darkness book. After 1908, the Free State was annexed by Belgium. It became known as Belgian Congo. But a new book, uh, Cobalt Red by Siddharth Kara, makes it clear that we have not left the atrocities of Leopold's era behind. Kara shows that the Congo has become a new heart of darkness, a site of horrifying exploitation that fuels the global economy at an immense human cost. So he started, this guy, Kara, um, has written extensively on modern slavery, and he says it's way more profitable now than at any point in human history. And so back in 2018, he visits the Congo mining provinces. And what he finds out is that if you bribe the right people, you can get access to all sorts of uh, sites of their operations. He finds 15,000 men and teenage boys hammering, shoveling, shouting inside this crater with, the, with scarcely any room to move or breathe. They're wearing, quote, masks, which are basically just, you know, cloths tied across their face like bandanas. Cobalt dust is toxic. There's no such thing as clean cobalt, right? Clean energy, clean... No, no such thing as clean cobalt. So while people are, are, are buying into this pitch that you're going to be, you know, environmentally friendly by driving an electric vehicle, you've got some kid being exposed to toxic cobalt so you can drive around in your electric vehicle. Like, I'm unclear as to how you think you have achieved some morally superior vantage point. Two-thirds of the DRC's supply of cobalt is said to be excavated with heavy machinery and industrial mines. This is what DRC says, two-thirds of it. But the rest is dug up what, by what they call artisanal... <laughs> yeah, because everything's artisanal now. Artisanal miners. Oh, yeah, it's like a boutique mine shop, you know. Okay, yes, there's some child slave labor going on there, but it's artisanal child slave labor. These artisanal miners, they can find better quality cobalt deposits close to the surface. This is their pitch. And then the traders who buy artisanal cobalt will then trade this mineral at what are called depots. They take the, the cobalt to the depots. And the depots are supposed to be run by the Congolese, right? This is supposed to be, a, I guess, like a, a national work program, right? Where it's all, we're going to build generational wealth. I mean, while we're killing the next generations, but we're going to be building the next, uh, we're going to build generational wealth for the elite Congolese, I guess. So they're supposed to be owned by the Congolese. But what Kara discovers in his investigation, they're actually mostly owned and operated by, care to take a guess? China. Of course. China. They're the ones that are running these operations, which I'm as shocked as you to discover that China would have such a spotty record on human rights issues. It's just amazing. 
Dave asks, what's the name of the book? The name of the book is Cobalt Red. Cobalt Red. How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. The author is Sidharth Kara. So the first name is S-I-D-D-H-A-R-T-H, Siddharth, and last name Kara, K-A-R-A. Um, I'm reading a review of the book. I've not read the book, Cobalt Red. I'm reading from this, um, uh, from this review of the book, uh, and this is Noel Yaxley writing at Compact Magazine. Um, and, uh, but this, uh, this author, Siddharth Kara, has written ex- extensively on modern slavery, says it's now more profitable uh, than it ever has been in history. Um, there's no such thing as clean cobalt, he says. Cobalt Red is a beautifully written expose of the new extraction economy. This meticulously researched book exposes the hypocrisy at the heart of the environmental activism that promotes quote-unquote clean energy in willful ignorance of the human costs of the transition it promotes. It also is a heartbreaking story chronicling the suffering endured by some of the world's poorest people for the sake of Western comfort. People are dying in hand-dug tunnels so that we can recharge our smartphones and electric vehicles. Yeah, I mean, this... It, like, I, it, it makes me not want to ever buy a smartphone. Well, there are a number of other reasons why I don't ever really want to buy a smartphone again, but... I don't want this on my conscience. Like, how do I now find conflict-free tech? While eye-opening and informative, Kara offers little in the way of meaningful solutions, though. A vast majority of the book is dedicated to exposing the horrendous conditions faced by the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo's children. Yet reform proposals are few and far between. If we are to help the DRC transition away from using child labor in the supply chain, immediate reform is essential. To avoid corruption, an independent intervention force is required to train law enforcement and officials. Also needed is a specialized task force to find and liberate those stuck in the child labor market. Uh, Stricter punishment for those who employ kids in the mines, with the threat of imprisonment for anybody who fails to comply with stronger working conditions. Locating ethically sourced cobalt beyond the Congo is not a likely solution at the moment. Australia and Morocco hold about 3% of the world's cobalt reserve, uh, reserves. That is nowhere near enough to meet demand. For the moment, the DRC has a near monopoly on the mineral. Um, and this is part of the problem, you know. Congo has been blessed with this resource but it's this hellscape and um, it's being driven by mandates yet another example everything government gets involved in <laughs> right we're gonna make sure we're all environmentally friendly we're gonna make sure that we're doing right by Gaia Earth and if we have to sacrifice tens of thousands of Congo children well I guess we have to it's for the earth so I guess we have our, is this, I mean, this is the, like, if you're, if you're having to weigh, right, in the Western elite's mind, if you have to weigh children of the Congo 
versus Mother Earth, Mother Earth wins. Right? That's the scale, I guess. Sorry. This is why there was a... Uh, I'm drawing a blank on his last name. His, his first name is like Constantin Cusin or Kaysen, I think. He's a comedian. He does uh, a podcast with a buddy of his or whatever. And he was actually... Uh, he debated... Uh, he debated uh, uh, climate change or something in like this, you know, English debate club Oxford thing a couple of weeks back, and uh, his side won. And he made a very simple argument. He uh, which is on climate change. You're telling the rest of the planet that it, that lives in poverty, that they have to stay in poverty uh, because climate change, and. There is not a parent you will find in any of those countries that will make that deal. They're not going to agree to that deal. Why would they? Right? Why, that, that their child you know, dies in a mine, uh, it gets exposed to the toxic chemicals uh, by working in the mine, uh, has a shortened lifespan because uh, uh, not enough uh, technology and uh, uh, standard of living is, is too low. And right, all of the, the, the health impacts of poverty, right? And the way they get out of that is with cheap energy, to find cheap energy, fossil fuels. And they're going to say, well climate change or my children live and they're going to pick children living every time it's only when you get to have the high standards of living in the west that you get to play that game of well you know we're going to uh, we're now going to change everything or to make energy more expensive and it's a fool's errand but this is the hubris this is why it's it's very much a religion it has, you know, tenets of faith and everything. Now, I will say, uh, I welcome some of the folks who are starting to have some doubts about that faith, specifically as it pertains to nuclear, or as the philosopher Homer Simpson calls it, nuclear, and George W. Bush. Nuclear. Yeah, there are some, there are some apostates. All right, are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for a military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old-school, traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim? He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time, American-made, because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear... Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and all the time at oldgrouch.com. Emails Pete at the thepetecalendarshow.com. Twitter is at Pete Callender. I welcome all apostates and converts. I welcome, yes, I welcome people of the environmental left who are now nuclear curious. Okay. I welcome you. Come on in. On February 21st, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman representing New York, visited Japan's Fukushima nuclear power plant, the site of a triple meltdown and arguably one of the world's worst nuclear disasters, and she walked out of the radioactive site glowing green. No, I'm kidding. Uh, with the equivalent dosage of two chest X-rays. 
That's what it was. Two chest x-rays. That, that, that's the equivalent dosage. That's what she got. During the visit, she documented the trip to her 8.6 million Instagram followers, who are probably all suffering from depression and anxiety, because that's what Instagram induces, explaining in calm detail what she had experienced and answering their questions. Alex Phillips, writing at Newsweek.com, quotes Ocasio-Cortez as saying, After the explosion, Japan's energy sources went from 30 to 40% nuclear to almost none. The flip side to that is the major drop in nuclear energy production has been made up in increased use of coal and fossil fuels whose carbon emissions accelerate climate change. While she said that her intention was to neither fearmonger nor sugarcoat what happened, she noted that nuclear energy is, quote, a very complex nuanced and often controversial topic in certain circumstances is it though (laughs) what would those circumstances be like at the antifa gatherings or something right a katua earth first uh vandalism and arson planning meetings or something i don't know her appraisal of the fuel of nuclear that provides 19 percent of americans electricity seemed almost warm right she didn't bash it she's not bashing it and this is i think this is what it's going to take right it's it's just a little bit it's a it's a baby step it's a teensy weensy little bit of progress from the progressives towards energy independence and towards sustainable high quality right efficient effective energy Is there a uh, softening, a slow softening of the left in the U.S. towards nuclear energy? Asks Alex Phillips at Newsweek. Maybe. Maybe. Back in 2019, you'll recall, AOC rolled out the Green New Deal. Right? Where she went and took the tough line on on cow flatulence. Right? There's a no-nonsense approach to the Putin by the cows. Um, she had some ambivalence about nuclear. And then she had to clarify her position, which was basically kind of sort of open to it. Right? So that's good news. All right, this is really not far from Biden's position when he ran in 2020 either. Maybe we could see some, some new nucle- uh, nuclear. There's been a shift more broadly on the left. Democrat and Democrat-leaning Americans have moved from being 59% opposed to expanding nuclear, 59% opposed, to 55% opposed. Okay, so it's, it's a little bit. But it's still, it, look, you got to take the win here, people. It's, it's movement nonetheless, right? 59% opposed, 38% in favor of expanding nuclear. That is now 55 opposed, 43 in favor. So it has, it's, it's shifted more towards approval. It's, it's still a 10-point swing. It's 55-45, but it's, it's still getting closer. It's a long and slow and partial shift towards grudging acceptance. The center of democratic politics, especially at the national level, 10 to 15 years ago, was not pro-nuclear. John Kerry who I believe served in Vietnam, if memory serves correctly. Um, He was an outspoken opponent of nuclear energy. 
now in his job as a climate envoy, where he goes and he meets with the climate on regular occasions. Uh, you know, he gets draft proposals from climate and he proposes stuff to climate. Um, as the climate envoy, uh, he tells all sorts of groups, nuclear is important. We have to have it as part of the clean energy transition. That's good news. Good news. Again, I'm not. I'm not going to bash. Uh, I'm not going to bash the American left for for coming back to the uh, the nuclear herd here, um, uh, or oh, the nuclear family. I guess we could call it. It returns to the new, like the prodigal son. It has returned to the nuclear family. Natural gas currently produces more than 38 percent of America's electricity. Wind and solar combined produce just 12 percent. Um, you would need to now. There now, there are people that are like it's not gonna. This is not the the long term strategy here. Uh, there are people there like nuclear is gonna. Uh, it's gonna fizzle out. Whatever. Um, you would need to triple existing nuclear capacity to replace gas and maintain existing nuclear production. It would be a massive build out. Um, yes, I agree, uh, and uh, and I support that. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes. Okay, massive build-out of nuclear. Okay, yes, good. I'm on board. Next next topic. Have you heard about the blob? The seaweed blob? Have you heard of this thing? The seaweed blob? I don't know. Like, I don't know whether to crack jokes about it or be terrified of it. I'm just kidding. I'm going to crack jokes about it. Come on. It's a seaweed blob. Marine scientists are tracking a seaweed bloom that is so large... It can be seen from space. That, that's big. It can be seen from space. It's called a Saragassum bloom. Uh, that is because it's in the Saragassum Sea region, which I guess kind of makes sense. But uh, uh, that might be racist. Hang on a second. Wait a minute. Hang on. Saragassum Sea region in the northern Atlantic. Yeah, we are. So okay, are we not? I thought we were not allowed to name things after areas of the world from whence they come we're not allowed to do that that is a racist name for the seaweed bloom it would just have to be called well i don't know the northern atlantic ocean seaweed bloom number one or two or whatever number it is we're gonna have to come up with a coding system oh no yeah we could label it with the greek alphabet because that's not racist i'm just going by the covid rules yeah um The Saragassum bloom uh, is nothing new, but scientists say this one could be the largest in history. It's already being made fun of on the uh, schoolhouse uh, uh, grounds at uh, recess. All sorts of Saragassum bloom jokes going on there. Your Saragassum bloom so big. Okay, uh, at last check, it was heading towards Florida's Gulf Coast. It is a thick mat of algae drifts. Oh, sorry. No, it's a thick mat of algae that drifts. It's just not a well-written sentence. Um, The thick mat of algae drifts between the Atlantic coast of Africa and the Gulf Coast of Mexico, providing habitat for marine life and absorbing carbon dioxide. All right, I'm going to need everybody to stop exhaling. You may inhale as much as you would like, but you need to stop exhaling. Apparently, we are feeding this thing by, by merely exhaling. So I'm going to need people uh, probably on the coasts, 
closest to this thing to just stop maybe like within the first hundred miles of the coastline stop exhaling again inhale all you want if you if you have to exhale uh blow it into a balloon and we're going to capture that co2 and then i don't know what we do with it after that may oh we could maybe well we're not using yucca mountain for all the nuclear waste out in nevada thanks harry reed so how about we just put all of our CO2 balloons into the Yucca, Mounta, uh, Yucca Mountain storage facility? It's in a cave. It's in a mountain or something. Um, so it's growing off of the CO2, but it also is providing habitat for marine life. Gosh, I'm torn. Do we want to destroy this thing or not? I'm not sure, because on the one hand... It's feeding off... Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Hang on a second. It says it's absorbing the carbon dioxide. So maybe it's... Oh, maybe it's a benefit. Oh, wait a minute. This changes everything. All right. Reverse course. I'm going to need everybody on the coast now to start blowing your exhaled air at the ocean. We want, we want, we want all of the CO2 to absorb. We need to grow this thing really, really, really large. Like, I think we could probably just, like, have it fill up one whole ocean. I, I'm not picky about which ocean. Probably one of the the lesser-used oceans, I would submit. But um, you fill up the whole ocean, and then that would act as a big CO2 sponge. And then climate change solved. And then we don't even have to do nuclear. We can go back to burning all sorts of fossil fuels, because no one's going to care. Ooh, we could put, like, a, a, these algae things. We could stuff them down the, the, the smokestacks. Why don't we just pile them down the smokestacks and let them absorb the CO2 that way? There are a lot of applications, a lot of filter applications here. Uh, unless my, I, I may be misunderstanding the science on this. Pete Callender here just chatting about the green seaweed blob. Um, it's an algae bloom. So it's the sargassum bloom. Sarga, sar, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Sargassum sea. That's where it comes from. The sargassum sea. It's a region in the northern Atlantic Ocean. Um... It's a thick mat of algae, and it drifts between the Atlantic coast of Africa and the Gulf of Mexico. It provides habitat for marine life and absorbs carbon dioxide, but it can also wreak havoc when it gets closer to shore. Why? It blocks light from reaching coral, and it negatively impacts air and water quality as it decomposes. This thing is humongous. It is 5,000 miles wide. I, it, like that's, that's like a cross-country trip and a half, right? That's amazing. I can't even fathom that distance. A single algae bloom that big. Um, Florida's Gulf Coast is already grappling with an algae bloom amid the busy spring break tourism season. Red tide has caused dead fish to wash ashore in droves. Nothing worse. Nothing worse than the dead fish. Walking around the beach, shaking your hand with that just limp hand. Oh, it's awful. While the risk of respiratory irritation for humans has canceled events and driven beachgoers away. This is the... So there are real-world impacts. Like, this is, uh, this is the concern, that this massive, rotting, sargassum sea algae bloom 
5,000 miles wide that's going to that's gonna land uh, somewhere around the coast of Florida, and it's just it's decaying. This is one of the things people don't uh, realize. Like, when, it, when you talk about climate change and uh, global warming and the greenhouse gases and such, first off, uh, the biggest greenhouse gas is water vapor, and the biggest producer of said water vapor is the ocean. So... Like, I don't know how we get, from what I understand, oceans are pretty big. And so I don't know how we're going to get around that. Um, I guess a big straw going out to space or something? I don't know. Um, then that robot. Yeah, that robot from the documentary Spaceballs. Uh, something like that, I think. But uh, like I'm just spitballing here. No bad ideas under the cone of creativity. So there's, so there's the ocean that uh, has all the water vapor. But also... The nitrogen, way worse, way worse than CO2, as far as pollutants go. And the biggest producer of the nitrogen is also the ocean, from all the decaying plant life and fish that are in the ocean. And then when they die, it, it just, it, like the gases get released, the decay, and they, they, it escapes out of the top of the surface of the ocean, and then it goes into the air. So we got to stop the fish from dying. We got to stop that. Maybe we just stop them from living first. Maybe that's what we do. See, if they're not alive, they can't die. Hmm? The logic is undeniable on that one. Same thing goes with the plant life. We're going to have to just like hoover up all the plant life. No more plant life. No more fish life. Nothing in the oceans. It just has to be just, just salt water. That's it. I mean, as long as we're cleaning them up, just sand and how about clean water? No salt water. This way we could drink it. I'm just thinking ahead, you know, create a, or solve a couple problems at the same time. Uh, so this way, if you're lost at sea, you can drink the water and you won't die of dehydration on the water, which is like a cruel irony. Um, rotting sargassum releases hydrogen sulfide, which can cause respiratory problems for tourists. Okay. Sorry, so I'm, I'm back against this thing now. All right, I'm against it. This thing seems really dangerous. It releases hydrogen sulfide. If you breathe it, then it, it creates respiratory issues. And there was apparently back in 2018, I do remember this, they had some big blooms and doctors in Martinique and Guadalupe reported thousands of people going to clinics with breathing complications from the air coming off of these rotting piles of sargassum. All right, we need to send, we need to turn this thing. We need to get Bruce Willis or whatever that NASA operation was that shot the asteroid. We need to aim at the algae bloom. New idea. All right, we'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.